is more on Ohostunsa than Xiaonyu. Uh, and I really want to compliment the president for initiating and inspiring this series of reflections as part of the decade of centenaries. Um, before exploring the difficult and divisive issues relating to the treaty and the subsequent civil war, I think it'd be helpful for a moment to reflect on what remarkable achievement Dáil Éireann secured in getting a ceasefire and a treaty with Britain, which was then one of the most powerful nations in the world. The very limited devolution that was offered in the 1914 Home Rule Act would have left an Irish Home Rule Assembly with significantly less powers than today's Scottish Assembly. By contrast, the 1921 treaty gave the new state dominion status, which had an external guarantee that it was similar to that of Canada. And this was given at a time when the dominions were expanding and securing much greater autonomy than they had ever enjoyed before. And Ireland was a beneficiary of that expanding autonomy, as Fergal McGarry has indicated. The treaty also granted full fiscal freedom, which was certainly not on offer remotely in 1912-1914. And this was highly significant, probably a, a, a deal breaker for Arthur Griffith, because it was something that he had long campaigned for as essential if the Irish economy was to develop as its full potential. The 1914 Home Rule Act and the 1921 Treaty both evaded the thorniest issue of all, that is Ulster. Both left the long-term settlement in terms of borders and or all-island governments arrangements for a later determination. But I think we can argue that the remarkable success of the Irish campaign, both domestically and, as Fergal has emphasised internationally, may have led to a certain hubris, a belief that anything was possible, including an Irish Republic, however that was defined. All negotiations involved compromises, and de Valera appears to have recognised that. Notably in a speech which he gave when he was in the United States in 1920, where he suggested that Ireland would accept a variant of the American Monroe Doctrine. In other words, that because of Ireland's geographical proximity to Britain, it would ensure that an independent Ireland would take account of Britain's defensive interests and never be used to threaten that. De Valera's proposal of external association was a further attempt to reconcile the Irish aspirations to independence with the British demands to retain a continuing association with the Crown. But as Dermot has emphasised, De Valera sat on the sidelines during the treaty negotiations, and it's unclear that the Irish delegation fully comprehended or accepted the external association option. There's no evidence that members of Dáil Éireann or the rank and file of the IRA were remotely aware that the negotiations would involve some compromises by the Irish delegation, and neither was there any detailed discussion among the Dáil ministry as to what form these compromises might take. Although Dáil Éireann existed as a legislative assembly from January 1919, the meetings were very irregular, they were poorly attended, and that's not surprising because for much of its existence, the members, many members were in prison or on the run or the doll itself was prescribed. But it would have been possible to schedule a number of discussions, debates on these topics following the truce in the summer of 1921. And the doll 
did hold private sessions, so they didn't necessarily have to be open to the public or the media. Such sessions might have injected a much-needed measure of realism into the expectations for the forthcoming negotiations. There were many signals, public and more private, that Britain would never countenance a republic, that it would insist on residual ties, particularly to the Crown and the Empire. And as Fergus has explained, this was an important issue, not just for British-Irish relations, but for the whole future of the British Empire. There was also a need to recognise that the Irish delegates were facing a team of very experienced statesmen whose negotiating skills had been honed at the Paris peace talks. They're playing effectively against the world champions of negotiations at this point. Britain, unlike Ireland, had worked out what they were prepared to concede and what was non-negotiable. Furthermore, while Dolan Erne and the struggle for independence had, as Fergus again emphasised, secured widespread international attention and sympathy, Russia was the only country that had recognised the new state, and Russia at this stage was a complete, uh, was, 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 was a rogue state, uh, not recognised uh, or acknowledged by many of the key players. The failure to have an Irish independence placed on the agenda at the Paris Peace Conference indicated there was little prospect of securing international recognition, let alone support, for an Irish republic that was established in defiance of Britain. Symbols mattered immensely to both sides. We're into an area of symbolism and emotion rather than reason on many issues. For Britain, the crown was paramount, though, frankly, in the early 1920s, the precise nature of the monarch's practical authority was very ill-defined, but the symbolism really mattered. Likewise, the Republic, equally ill-defined, but a term that conjured up the sacrifices of the 1916 leaders was non-negotiable for many Dáil deputies and for IRA members and many members of Common Amman. When the committee that was charged with drafting a constitution for the Irish Free State tried to reconcile these conflicting principles by excluding references to the treaty in the draft constitution, excluding also the oath of allegiance and the monarchy, and including a clause stating that all powers of government are derived from the people of Ireland, which is an implicitly republican form of language, Britain insisted the constitution be rewritten to incorporate the terms of the treaty. The irony is that within a decade, almost all the residual powers of the British government and monarchy over the Irish Free State had vanished, and in the 1940s, an independent Indian Republic was established, which remained and remains today a member of the Commonwealth. This is a case of external association for slow learners. Leaving Ulster aside for a moment, the clause in the treaty which had the greatest potential to constrain an independent Ireland was Britain's retention of three naval bases. If that had not been resolved by 1938, Irish neutrality would have been impossible in World War II. But the implications of those bases for an independent Irish foreign policy was not widely discussed during the treaty debates, except by Erskine Childers. And likewise, the question of Ulster and a boundary commission only took approximately 10% of the treaty debates, of interest only to TDs with strong Ulster connections like Sean McEntee or Ernest Blythe. The extensive treaty debates and how the individual deputies voted have been subjected to detailed analysis by many historians who sought to explain the reasons why some deputies voted the way they did. It's 
clear that these decisions were extremely complex. They cannot be explained by references to geography, social class, age, or any of the normal variables used by social scientists. There was only one coherently identifiable voting block. All six women TDs voted against the treaty. Some of the male deputies who supported the treaty dismissed the women as mere ciphers for dead male heroes. A criticism that fails to acknowledge that with the possible exception of Margaret Pierce, who was mother of Patrick and Willie, the women in question had proven records of involvement in the campaign for independence. They were not ciphers. The views expressed by the six women deputies were shared by a much wider cohort of women who were members of Common Amman. There were 77 women interned in the aftermath of the 1916 rising, but there were approximately 600 women interned in the, during the Civil War, which suggests that there was a remarkable increase in female activism in the years between 1916 and 1921, and also that the women were concentrated disproportionately on the anti-treaty side. Now, some of those women are very well known. Hani Sheehy, Scaventine, Mary McSweeney, Constant Markovitz, to name a few. Many of those women have been forgotten, and I think we need to understand them better. Their lives are only now being explored. The strength and passion of the women's opposition to the treaty suggests that for politically active women, the Republic symbolised a break with the past and significant change. The treaty split and ensuing civil war threatened the survival of the state. The bitter divisions, the violence and destruction gave comfort to those, and there were many, who believed that the Irish people were incapable of self-government. Many commentaries at the time, written from a unionist perspective, some in Ireland and many in Britain, described the conflict as evidence of Irish barbarity and propensity to anarchy. Britain had its contingency plans in place for a naval blockade of the Irish ports, the first step to resuming control if the anti-treaty forces had prevailed. Many of Irish business elite and banking elite would have welcomed that collapse of the new state and a reversion to some form of subordinate status to Britain. In the years 1922-23, as Ronan Fanning showed, the Irish Free State secured much greater sympathy and practical support from the British Treasury when it was running out of money than it did from the Irish banks. At issue also was the survival of a parliamentary democracy, though I agree with German that the story is more complex than Tom Garvin might suggest. The history of Ireland during the years 1912-23 is one of a dialectic between parliamentary democracy and physical force. The tensions between the two strands were evident in the years 1919-21 when an elected assembly, Dáil Éireann, coexisted with the IRA. But the Dáil failed to secure effective control over the military and there was also another secret organisation, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, lurking in the background. The results of the 1922 election indicated that many voters wanted a return to some form of normality. Over 78% of votes in the election went to parties and candidates that supported the treaty settlement. Though, as Dermot has noted, up to three quarters of our IRA volunteers are reported to oppose that settlement. 
for many young men who were active in the War of Independence, and young women as well indeed, and who were perhaps fated as heroes, normality went returning to life, on the, working on the family farm, the family business, subject to parental dictates, or working as an impoverished urban labourer, or more commonly still, unemployment. So it is perhaps not surprising that many were prepared to continue that fight. They weren't unique. In the immediate aftermath of World War I, there were many demobilised soldiers scattered throughout Europe, particularly on the eastern fringes, seeking a new role for themselves and some new form of excitement. The Black and Tans were recruited from such men, and the large numbers recruited into the Irish National Army in 1922, following the outbreak of civil war, included many Irish men who had fought in the Great War. Government victory in the Civil War doesn't end that threat of violence from the IRA and its offshoots or from demobilised and disenchanted members of the National Army. This remained a recurring prospect throughout the first decades of the new state. There were no real winners in this conflict, with the possible exception of Sir James Craig and the Government of Northern Ireland, who were granted the time and space to consolidate unionist rule, including the abolition of proportional representation, while nationalist Ireland fought a bitter and divisive civil war. The emotional and physical consequences of this conflict were momentous, as the stories that Dermot has told us from the military pensions files indicate. And the cost of repairing the physical damage, on top of the destruction caused during the War of Independence, was a crippling burden on the new state, and one that forced that government to adopt a policy of austerity with respect to spending on social and economic development. Mary Cullen has noted that one of the most striking features of post-treaty politics in the Irish Free State was the sudden disappearance from the public political arena of many of the women who had become prominent there. I personally believe that the intellectually pure stance taken by so many talented and committed women who stood by the Republic, not just in 1922, but again in 1927 and later, reiterating their determination not to take their seats in Dáil Éireann, had serious long-term consequences for women's place in Irish politics. Their abstention made it possible for male politicians to indulge, as sadly they did, in us outbursts of misogyny, stereotyping women as incapable of participating in democratic politics. P.S. O'Hegarty described Republican women as the implacable and irrational upholders of death and destruction. He claimed that with women in political power, there would be no more peace, and he wasn't alone. If I was to summarise the 1920s in Ireland in one word, it would have to be disillusion. The heady expectations that were associated with the Irish Revolution, the 1916 Proclamation, the democratic programme of the First Dáil, the promises of an end to the degradation of British-style poor law, the hopes of many landless labourers and non-inheriting farmers' sons that they would acquire land and become farmers, all faded away as the new state and its people struggled with the realities of unemployment, poverty and emigration. One of the phrases that has been widely used over the decade of centenaries, and Fergal mentioned it in his talk, is the emphasis on shared histories. The history of the treaty and the bitter and violent aftermath was shared by those who opposed the settlement and those who supported it. It's evidence that shared histories are not necessarily happy or harmonious. 
But I would like to conclude by echoing Dermot's closing words. We do need to show more empathy for the passions that drove many of those who were involved in the Irish Revolution and the challenges that they faced when those heady days were over in adjusting to the mundane and often grim realities of 1920s Ireland. Gurmil Marketh.